1: This is CQ Future, and I'm Sean Zeller. We began this series last year to examine how the pandemic was influencing public policy decisions. This week, we are reprising some of our podcasts to mark the one-year anniversary of the moment when most Americans realized the magnitude of the threat and states began to shut down. COVID-19 has made the idea of telehealth where doctors visit with patients using technology delivered by video or phone, a reality. Until now, telehealth played a minor role in the nation's $3.6 trillion healthcare industry. The Government Accountability Office, the investigative arm of Congress, reported in 2017 that just 1% of all Medicare beneficiaries received healthcare through telemedicine. What a difference three years and a pandemic makes. Two major hurdles were taken away in March when the coronavirus started blanketing the U.S. First, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services allowed scores of new telehealth services to be reimbursed at the same rates as in-person care. Then, the Department of Health and Human Services relaxed the federal patient privacy laws known as HIPAA. Telehealth certainly filled the need for some. But what happens to those who may not have access to technology or its infrastructure? We decided to have a conversation with someone on the front lines and turn to Dr. Julia Arnston, who has been at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, for nearly 25 years and is Director of the Division of General Internal Medicine. Her research background also includes work on health disparities. She was at the heart of the epicenter when New York was besieged. By the coronavirus. Welcome to the show, Dr. Arnston. We appreciate you joining us.
0: Thank you. Very nice to be here.
1: Well, can you tell us a little bit about how the virus has affected the way you and your colleagues practice medicine?
0: So as you know, uh, New York City has been the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic over the last four months. And within New York City, there is significant variation in which parts of the city were affected. Uh, The Bronx, where I practice, was the borough that was the most deeply affected with the greatest proportion of the population uh, both being infected with COVID-19 and being hospitalized for COVID-19, and in in addition having deaths from COVID-19. As a result, uh, our entire healthcare system transitioned very rapidly to a healthcare system that cared almost entirely for patients with COVID-19. We shut down, as per the governor of New York's border, all elective surgeries and procedures and closed all of our ambulatory clinics except for emergencies and devoted all of our resources to caring for COVID-19 patients. That required us to increase the number of beds that we were able to offer to the community by about 50%. So, at our peak, we had nearly 2,000 patients with COVID 19 throughout the Montevideo health system. Uh, As you probably know, New York State and the city in particular have now not just flattened the curve, but significantly bent the curve. And so, we're now uh, trying to return to normal operations uh, with extraordinary precautions to prevent us from slipping backwards. One of the ways in which we're returning to normal operations with precautions in place is to increase the use of of telemedicine to deliver primary care and other sorts of care.
1: And this is a big change, right? I mean, telemedicine has not been typically used, especially in big urban environments like New York City.
0: That's exactly correct. There is significant usage of telemedicine in this country, uh, but it's very, very different uh, by geographic region and also by uh, type of insurance and by socioeconomic status. So in general, although some people in urban environments do access telemedicine. uh, Generally, they don't, and that's a function of um, both the way in which people in urban environments live, which is different than the way in which people in rural environments live, but also that urban environments generally have higher proportions of people who are non-white, people who are not native English speakers, uh, people who are poorer. And one thing that we know about technology is that Uh, people who are not native English speakers, uh, people who are living in poverty, tend to use technology uh, quite a bit less than people who are native English speakers or are not living in poverty. And so that in itself has created a great divide in the accessibility of telemedicine across the country. With COVID-19 and the way in which it's differentially affected areas in which people live in poverty, we really have um, not just an opportunity, but a moral and ethical imperative to figure out how to make telemedicine accessible across the population.
1: And that's because, of course, we've heard about the devastation of the virus in New York City. But one of the terrible side effects is that people have not been going in for other sorts of care and getting the routine care that they need. And telemedicine is a part of a solution to that, at least in the short term.
0: Absolutely. Uh, we, we know that over the last three months in New York City and Uh, showing that the number of of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests had had tripled in the last three months. And so that's an incredibly dire and and frightening statistic. And that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. We've had uh, frighteningly low uh, numbers of inpatients over the last few months that do not have COVID-19. Doctors are constantly having conversations, wondering, where is everybody else? Where are the strokes? Where are the fractures? Where are the heart attacks? Where is the run of the mill bacterial pneumonia? Where are all the patients? And now that we're not full, now that our emergency departments and inpatient boards are not full and overflowing um, with COVID 19 patients, we're completely dismayed to see that they're too empty. Our hospital always operates at greater than 100% census, probably closer to 110% census. We're always overflowing. But there's great fear because of the fact that for so many months, the hospital system was where all the COVID patients were.
1: Well, speak to how telemedicine can, can play a role in helping there. Because in a telemedicine situation, you're not able to examine the patient, but what as a physician can you do that could help someone who is having a heart problem or is having a stroke or, or is just having some less severe problem?
0: So, so that's, a, that's a really interesting question that actually encompasses a lot, of different, um, a lot of different concepts. So let me see if I can break it down a little bit. So one concept is, what can be done with a telemedicine visit? Can there be a physical exam? How extensive can the telemedicine visit be? And the answer to that is that the telemedicine visit, if it involves a video, can be very extensive. It can actually enable the, the doctor to look at the patient, to see how quickly they're breathing, to look at um, any physical exam findings that may be visible to the eye that don't require actual laying on of hands. Um, in, in some cases, the patients can be directed to perform certain maneuvers that can help to make diagnoses. So the range of things that can happen on a video-enabled telemedicine visit is actually way greater than many people think. I think that those of us who are, who are not doctors or those of us who are used to talking on the phone, which is all of us, believe that we can't do a physical exam or we can't make any conclusions based on observation through a a telemedicine visit. And the reality is that that's just not true. A number of studies have been published showing that when doctors are able to examine their patients by video and to direct their patients to perform certain maneuvers. So for example, if you had a sprained ankle, the doctor could say to you, push on your ankle uh, in 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 the middle of where the bone is on the inside of your foot and show me while you're doing it. And then the doctor could say, okay, now push a little higher or push a little lower. Now rotate your ankle to the left. Now rotate your ankle to the right. Now tell me how that feels. All of that is possible with training, with training of the doctors and with training of the patients. So that's sort of one concept is how much can be done with, with a video visit. And the answer is a lot can be done with a video visit. Now, certainly um, the acute events that I just talked about, like an a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or a stroke cannot be handled by telemedicine. Those, those visits need to come to the hospital. But that's not most visits. Most visits are follow-up for chronic disease and um, preventive medicine. And so almost all of those visits, almost all, not all, can be done by telemedicine or by video visit. What the barrier is, the barrier is that many people, including many physicians, especially those of a certain generation, don't have the technological literacy, don't have the digital literacy to complete the visit. And so what needs to happen in order for this kind of medical care to be delivered in this way is that we need to work very hard to train our patients and to train our staff to help patients. So I'll give you an example of that. Traditionally, you go to a doctor's office and a nurse or a medical assistant takes your vital signs and seats you in the exam room while you're waiting for the doctor. And before you leave, that person might go over the doctor's instructions with you. So on a telemedicine visit, those pre-visit and post-visit minutes can be spent ensuring that the patient is able to use the technology, that the patient has a private place to be, That the patient has all of the things that they might need to show the doctor, like their pill bottles or their blood pressure log or their blood sugar log if they have diabetes, and that the doctor is able to conduct the visit so that everybody knows how to use the technology. After the visit, that person can look at the doctor's notes and can say to the patient, do you know how to follow up with this? Do you know how to get these blood tests drawn? Do you know where to go to follow up on this recommendation? And so we need to really think hard about reimagining the tasks that people who are trained as licensed practical nurses, LPNs, or medical assistants, MAs do in order to effect meaningful telemedicine visits.
1: You mentioned that there have been some impediments to telemedicine, Uh, One, of course, is that people don't have access to the internet or they don't have computers. Um, Another is insurance policy rules, right? Can you speak to that a bit and how those have impeded telemedicine and whether that situation is getting better, whether the government and insurers are adjusting rules?
0: Many insurance carriers have not um, traditionally reimbursed telemedicine, although some have. But the major insurance carrier in this country, Medicare and Medicaid, or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, has not traditionally reimbursed telemedicine. And that has put telemedicine outside of the reach of people who are insured by those systems, who are older people and people who who live in poverty. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, CMS relaxed those restrictions and allowed reimbursement for telemedicine and for video medicine. The reimbursement rate is still lower than for in-person visits right now, even though we're not really able to do in-person visits. And it's also, at least by CMS, temporary. So a really important step going forward that many doctors believe should happen is that CMS should make those, we should make that the ability for, for themselves to cover telemedicine visits permanent, not temporary, and that there should be parity with in-person visits, and that would be an, an extraordinary change, and um, and I believe would have a, a major impact on the health of older people in this country and the health of people who are insured by Medicare and Medicaid.
1: And that's a regulatory change that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services could do on its own. Correct. What about Congress? Um, I know there's talk in Congress about additional funding for broadband deployment, especially in rural areas. I take it that would be key as well to making this work in places where people do not have good internet access.
0: More widespread broadband access would allow more people to be able to use platforms to enable telemedicine because one of the barriers for individuals is that, um, Many people do not want to use the cell phone or data plan minutes that they pay for on their own. And so the only way that broad swaths of the population will access telemedicine is through Wi-Fi or through an internet connection. And that needs to be enabled through broadband access. And broadband access is also uh, very differentially available in this country. And so that would be a huge advance forward if, um, if that were not a barrier.
1: And the Federal Communications Commission has a program to get cell phones and broadband access to people living in poverty or lower income people. Is more necessary there? I, clearly, you've seen that that's a problem in your area.
0: Yeah, I think, I think more is necessary because um, you know we're not reaching everybody that we need to reach. As, there was a study that was done out of, um, out of San Francisco, and they looked at um, the New England Journal of Medicine, and they looked at patients seen before telemedicine implementation and after telemedicine implementation. So before telemedicine implementation for them was in February and after was in March because San Francisco also had a very significant COVID-19 epidemic. And what they found was that the the people who um, were seen after telemedicine implementation were much less likely to be over 65, were much less likely to have Uh, non-English speaking preference, much less likely to have Medicare, and much less likely to have Medicaid. So despite that initiative, we're not reaching people who need access to telemedicine. So we need other ways to do that. One way to do that would be for medical centers, and probably other, other institutions that serve the public, like libraries, to, um, to enable people to have access to iPads, to training, to be able to use iPads, and to other ways of accessing um, accessing the internet. So it, it it can't just be kind of a you know a one agency that's trying to expand access to the internet and wait and and and. Uh, and providing more devices for people. It has to be multiple agencies, and hospitals could be part of this. We see a lot of patients. We could discharge people with an iPad if they don't have one or another kind of tablet. Those are things that we could do. We just need to have the will to do them.
1: Of course, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Telemedicine's benefits are clear in this situation. What about after the pandemic passes? Will more widespread use of telemedicine offer benefits to Americans then?
0: I, I, I believe that it will. And, um, and these are some of the reasons, the, the reasons that, I, that I say that. You know, for many people coming to the doctor, uh, requires that they take a day off from work or a half a day off from work, that somebody else may need to take time off to bring them to work, to, I mean, to the doctor. Um, and if we if we didn't require people to do that, you know, if we didn't require people to come and meet us, the physicians, where we are, but instead we figured out ways to use all of the resources available to us to meet patients more where they're at, uh, overall, we would be able to deliver more care to more people. Other reasons are that people come to the doctor when they're sick and if there's if the illness that they have is an infectious disease and we're asking them to come to the doctor's office to sit in a waiting area to interact with lots of people then we're potentially putting many other people at risk for that infectious disease. A telemedicine option for somebody who has an infectious disease who who may not need to be hospitalized, is a great option for them. So those are two big reasons.
1: Dr. Arnston, is this a tech issue or a policy issue? And, And given that question, which policymakers need to be involved here?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a that's a really important question. And I think it's a question that stretches across, you know, many different areas. And I believe that the answer is that it's both. And so that what it requires is for people in in these different areas to speak to one another. And that's tough you know, getting out of our individual silos and really understanding the perspectives of people in a whole other industry is something that many of us are not really good at. And especially in, in medicine, you know, it's a, we, we tend to talk to other doctors, we tend to talk to other um, healthcare leaders. And so uh, if we were able to work more effectively with the FCC or with other tech leaders, I think that would be terrific. The, the downside is that, you know, technology right now and, and tech companies are um, they're they're for profit, and so what? One of the things that I've talked about are issues of health equity, and so in enabling the use of technology in a way that is not going to generate profit is something that um, it would be terrific if tech companies could get behind.
1: Is there anything else, doctor, that we didn't ask that would be important for our listeners to know?
0: I think that. Um, You know, one of the big challenges in telemedicine is that uh, that the the people who need care for the most part in this country are people who are over 65, for the most part. And those are people who are going to have the hardest time embracing telemedicine. And they're not the market. You know, they're not the market that's going to drive that's gonna drive innovation uh, or, or, or profit motives in the tech industry. And so we need to figure out ways to come together creatively to, um, to develop technology that people who are older can use uh, because it it probably can't be the same technology that people who are younger use. It probably needs to be different technology. And so we need to think about the constituency for whom we're developing solutions. When we develop them, we need different solutions for, for different people. So we need to understand the barriers that different groups are bringing to telemedicine and then develop solutions for people with those barriers. One other point that we didn't get to has to do with, um, the ease of adding interpreter services to a telemedicine visit. So, you know, in some of our healthcare settings, we have significant proportions of people who are non-English speaking, as I was talking about before. And how, how um, seamlessly can we integrate interpreter services into those visits? That's a major issue.
1: Dr. Arnston, I appreciate you joining us and sharing your expertise. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, it's been my pleasure.
1: That's all for this edition of CQ Future. For all of us at CQ Roll Call, I'm Sean Zeller.